This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bintotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. This week on Meet and 3, we have stories about food in large quantities. From bulk buying groups and reasons for stocking up, to creative solutions for handling excess waste. We have someone picking up our corks from the wine bottles and they repurpose them to make buoys for boats and, and, and like shoes and all these different things. Yeah, because of the COVID, uh, everybody like uh, isolated at home. But uh, to see the people face to face is still exciting. So we kind of treat like a chance to say hello to the people and to the friend. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcast. Okay. Well, welcome to the fall here at Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway, and you're listening to Eat Your Words. So it's been uh, it's been a tumultuous year um, for many people. Uh, it, it has also been a very busy fall here at Heritage Radio Network. Uh, for one thing, we've just to, just to let you know, we've started doing some virtual events. And uh, right now you can sign up for a virtual cooking demo that Heritage Radio Network is hosting with yours truly, me, <laughs> Kathy Array, and I am actually going to be demonstrating for my new book, Sheet Pan Chicken. Um, this will be taking place October 22nd, so you can buy tickets right now for it um, at Eventbrite. You'll also get a copy of the book, Sheet Pan Chicken, thanks to Books Are Magic, a local bro- uh, Brooklyn bookstore here. You'll also, if you're one of the first 20 people to sign up, you'll get free spices from Burlap and Barrel Single Origin Spices. And the event is also sponsored by Springer Mountain Farms. So we hope you check that out. And on to today's show. I am so thrilled to have this guest on today. It is a, uh, a long-term uh, food columnist, uh, a veteran uh, journalist, And, you know, it might seem like there's no end to urgent crises to address in 2020, but there are so many things that we aren't talking about enough, it seems, this election season. And, you know, as a pandemic continues to rip through the nation, taking lives and livelihoods, still the food industry, and certainly on this network, we do hear a lot of discussion about, you know, what's going to happen to the restaurant industry. So this is something that is very visible, right? We, we see restaurants, uh, most people interact with restaurants daily. But if we look beyond this and we look to the farming industry, which many of us don't interact with daily, it's where we get our food. So, and even before the pandemic, the U.S. farming industry was in a perilous state. So... My guest today is a leading journalist covering the food system. He writes about it right now in Mother Jones and before that at Grist. And his first book came out this summer. Um, It is called Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. I'm so pleased to welcome on the show, Tom Philpott. Hi. I'm so happy to be here, Kathy. Thank you so much for joining. And uh, thank you for this tremendous book. Uh, How long did it take you to work on? Oh, wow. Um, I basically started with the research hardcore in 2017. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of years, but really this is stuff I've been working on and thinking about for a long time, like going back at least a decade. Mm-hmm. You've been also a farmer yourself. So from 2004 to 2012, you were a farmer at Maverick Farms in North Carolina. So you bring that, that ecological background to your work as a journalist as well. That's was right. This, yeah. Was this something that was, I guess, something you've been thinking about for even longer when you were a journal? I'm uh, sorry, when you're a farmer too? Yeah. You know, in fact, I started to write about food politics when I was still a farmer. Um, mm-hmm. I started in uh, 2005 and I'd been farming for about two years. And I had actually been a financial journalist in New York City and um, kept that job for the first year kind of remotely while I was farming. And then when I, when that job ended, um, I had all this discipline to write every day and had all these thoughts that I was thinking about the food system and how my perspective on it was changing from being a farmer. And so I just started to write um, a personal blog in, uh, in 2005. And that's sort of how this um, whole career as a food politics writer started. Fascinating. Well, congratulations. Um, your work has, is really impactful. I, and, uh, you know, I, it's, it's too bad that this came out at a time when there's so many other things on everyone's mind. I mean, pandemic, election, uh, you know, you name it. Um, but it's, it's, it's so urgent, this book. And I'm curious how the reception has been so far. I mean, I think I've been, you know, very pleased and honored to get some nice reviews. I got a New York Times book review from Corby Comer that was really nice. But I think that you're hitting on something really important about the the way that the book came out. Um, it's a little bit of a tough sell in 2020 when they're, you know, we're basically living through this, you know, series of apocalypses. And to have a book come out that, say, that says, hey, this one other thing that you're not thinking about right now is even worse than you think. Um, so, I, you know, I think that it's a it's a little bit of a tough sell to get people to think about the sort of ecological crises that are haunting the food system. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that, you know, the pandemic has ripped the veil off of so much injustice in our society that I think, you know, you know, I, I think we've talked about on, I know you guys have talked about in Heritage before about the plight of meatpacking workers during the pandemic. I That's think that right. does open a conversation for thinking more broadly about the food system. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Right, right, right. And yet there's so much at stake. I mean, you, you share some of the facts that you share are that, you know, between 2004 and 2013, the, Colum- the Colorado River Basin lost almost 53 million acre feet of underground water. Um, this is from the way our farming system is, you know, using up water right now. And then you write also that Iowa farmland is losing topsoil to run off faster than it can be replenished. So, and and the water table in many parts of California's uh, Central Valley has sunken some 100 feet. So I'm curious, I mean, why aren't we more panicked about this? I think it's because we aren't really seeing the effects of it yet at the grocery store, at the restaurant, et cetera. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about it, like, um, you know, these are slow motion crises. If California's Central Valley essentially uses all the water in its aquifers, 
it um, until it's actually gone, and until the snowpack of the Sierra Nevada mountains, which also feeds that um, that region's farming, and it's also in decline because of climate change. Mm-hmm. We're not we don't really see it at the grocery store um, until basically it's gone, and so it's easy not to think about. And it's the same thing with the topsoil in Iowa. You know, I write that book, and you know maybe you read the book, and then you go to the supermarket, and you see this you know uh, meat section that is just groaning with meat. And you're like, what's this guy talking about? Um, and so I think, I think, I think that is, that, that's why. And so that's what my job is, is to try mm-hmm. to, you know, make people think about it anyway. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, you write in your introduction that if the current ecological unraveling proceeds at the pace that it is right now, um, it will trigger social and ecological disruptions that voting with your fork, quote unquote, won't protect us from anymore. Um, it, it's very compelling, uh, your research uh, throughout this book. And uh, if you don't mind, I, I would love to read a little bit to to just give folks a deeper idea of um, the topics. Um, I'd love to read a little bit more from the intro. Sure. Great. So you write, um, what drives this creeping disaster is the rise of virtual of a virtual oligarchy of companies that capture most of the profit generated by the trillion-dollar-a-year food economy. Three massive globe-spanning companies, Bayer, Monsanto, Corteva, and Syngenta, sell the great bulk of the seeds and pesticides available to you as farmers. A handful of others, Tyson Foods, Cargill, JBS, and Smithfields, slaughter and pack the majority of the meat we'll eat. Um, I'm going to skip ahead. And then you write, as I'll show this, these behemoths profit by squeezing farmers and offloading the costs of ecological degradation they cause onto communities and taxpayers. And they invest a serious portion of their gains into Washington, D.C., lobbying and campaign donations, allowing them to beat back regulations and resist challenges to their primary primacy, sorry, in the food system. Um, that sounds like a lot we're up against. <laughs> Indeed. Um, my question is, why aren't the giants of our industrialized food system who have inevitably created these conditions that are are looking to create a, an, a, something of an apocalypse uh, in farming, um, why aren't they doing more to counter this potential collapse? I mean, I think it's um, sort of human psychology um, – if you're doing something that benefits you in the short term, mm. but that might cause long, long-term damage, it's really hard to stop doing. I mean, you can almost think about it like a cigarette habit. Um, smoking is really fun. Um, you love the ritual of the smoke break. You love you know, having cigarettes and coffee. Um, and it makes you feel good. Uh, and so you might know at the back, at the back of your head, Hey, this is inevitably almost going to cause lung, lung cancer, but it's really hard to quit. And I think if you're these companies, the system they have set up is delivering so much in terms of profit that it's really hard for them to think, um, you know, what does this look like in 20 years? I mean, I think the mentality is we'll figure that out when 20 years comes. And I think there's also with these companies and with our society at large, a tendency to think about tech tech fixes like, oh yeah, well, you know, we're using up all the water in California and destroying the, the topsoil in Iowa. That's pretty bad, but 
there'll be some technology that'll sort this out for us down the road. Hmm. And yet the solutions that you explore in this book um, that some farmers have been exploring are not exactly high tech. Um, you interview several farmers uh, who have figured out how to grow crops profitably without draining the aquifers or allowing uh, annual topsoil runoff. Um, tell me a little bit about those folks. Yeah. So, you know, basically biodiversity is a really powerful tool in agriculture. Getting things sort of things in nature to work together in a, in a productive way ends up being a really powerful tool. It's also uh, what they call more management intensive. It takes more thought. It takes more time. It takes more labor. Um, and so I think that is the reason why it has been, you know, so I don't want to say easy, but so effective to get American farmers, you know, to move away from biodiversity and rely on chemicals to do the job that biodiversity would do otherwise. But what these farmers that I profile in the book, what they're doing is, like in the Midwest, basically, most farms there grow two crops every year, corn and soybeans. They, they plant them at the same time in the you know, sort of late spring. They harvest them at the same time in the fall. And in between um, planting and harvest, I'm sorry, between harvest and the next planting, they leave them bare. Um, so the, the ground is bare, and yet that's why you get all this, all this topsoil loss because these really powerful climate change-driven storms come in and just pummel the soil and send it moving, you know, down streams and down rivers. And so what these farmers are doing is they're growing more crops. It just sounds so simplistic, but it's, you know, basically the way it is. They're growing, growing more crops in this corn and soybeans, keeping the ground covered. And the benefits of that simple biodiversity, just having more crops in corn and soybeans, what it does is it breaks weed patterns. And so that means, um, less need for herbicides. It breaks pest pattern, you know, insect patterns. So less need for pests, for um, insecticides. Um, and it also uh, develops fertility in the soil because you can, you know, use more legumes, fix nitrogen, and that means less fertilizer. And so they're seeing drastic reductions in agrochemicals, much cleaner water leaving the farm, and, and also holding soil in place. And so it, it's great, but the problem for agribusiness is it's basically making their products useless, you know, not useless, but making them way less useful, making them marginal instead hmm. of central to the growing system. And, um, and so that's why agribusiness is not encouraging this kind of farming. To be um, a layperson, why don't they pivot to growing or selling, I don't know, seeds of legumes and other, you know, biodiverse crops? That's a great question. And so the answer is that the seed industry, the seed business is kind of a sleepy business. Mm -hmm. You know, you can make a profit in it, but it, it tends to be rather low margin, low profit. And so what you had, you know, before, let's say the 1960s or 70s, you had these regional family seed businesses, there were lots and lots of them. It was like a, you know, a good family business. No one was getting super wealthy from it. And what, um, what happened, and I tease this out on the book, is starting in the 70s, as the chemical industry started to experiment with genetically modified crops, with this mm -hmm. sort of new transgenic technologies, they um, moved their attention 
you know, well, they moved their attention to seeds. Um, and so they started to apply this technology to, to seeds. And what that meant was an increase in patents, um, an increase in um, intellectual property um, enforcement, uh, made it, you know, more and more difficult for farmers to save seeds. And even that still was a fairly low margin business. And mm-hmm. so what they started to do is, well, you know, we're chemical companies already. Mm. What if we could engineer seeds to, um, to withstand our herbicides? Mm-hmm. And so what happens then is these chemical companies that were basically planning to just sell, um, you know, basically like the, the right to use the trait to seed companies, sort of like a, um, a software company will sell you the right to use Microsoft Word on your computer. You, you can use it, but we still own Microsoft Word. That was the original business model. Then they say, okay, let's buy the seed companies and so consolidate them and, and mash them together with agrochemical companies. And mm. so their whole business model is selling you seeds and agrochemicals. And so when, when these farmers come along and don't need their agrochemicals anymore, it's just not that interesting to them. There's way less money selling a farmer cover crop seed than there is in selling, you know, him or her, you know, soybeans engineered to withstand three different herbicides. My goodness, this is totally tangential. But you know, since we brought up genetically modified organisms, um, better known as GMO in the supermarket, does does you know, speaking of voting with your fork, does not buying those. GMO, you know, no GMO products do anything to hurt these giants or, or is that just total smoke and mirrors? <laughs> it's basically smoke and mirrors. And the reason why is that most of the crops that are grown genetically modified go into feed. They go into livestock feed. And so stuff like, um, you know, cow feed, um, uh, hog feed, chicken feed. Um, that's where the great bulk of the, uh, the gen- genetically modified corn and soybeans go. And so mm. if you're, and then, you know, something else about the, the no GMO thing is that there are very few actual GMO crops out there. And so you can slap mm. a no GMO tag yeah. on almost anything and yeah. put a halo over it. So you can take, <laughs> yeah. you can take Lay's potato chips. And as long as you're not using soybean oil, you're using some different kind of oil besides soybean oh, oil or corn yeah. oil, okay. you can slap a, a non-GMO tag on them and go on about your business. And so that puts a halo on it. So yeah, I think, you know, I, I think it's pretty questionable. Yeah. that it seems like a distraction. Um, all right. So, so actually we're going to cut to a quick little break, but right afterwards, I want to talk a lot more with Tom Philpot and what's at stake at this election. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Bin subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month. 
and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Ben to Table box subscription. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. And Ben to Table will donate $10 to HRN. All right, we're back chatting more with Tom Philpot. He is a columnist at Mother Jones, and his new book, Perilous Bounty, explores the looming collapse of American farming and how we can prevent it. Um, so, Tom, you know, you, we, you talk a lot about the solutions that are out there um, with these, you know, kind of lone farmers um, in, in California and Iowa who are, are you know, promoting biodiversity and they're not creating this environmental degradation the way that um, industrial agriculture is. How, you know, why aren't there, why aren't there more following in their footsteps? And uh, what are the farmers that you spoke with? Um, how are they regarded in the farming community? Yeah, so, you know, basically the, the reason why these farmers that are successfully doing this and actually, you know, making, not getting rich, but making a decent profit um, with their goods, the reason why they're not imitated is that it's just, you know, kind of goes back to that cigarette metaphor I used earlier. Um, so most farmers in the Midwest are doing corn and soybeans and that's it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they have hog buildings that they're, you know, giant, you know, hog factories that they're uh, growing hogs under contract with these big meat companies. And even though it's a terrible business, and there are very few profits, very slim, if any, profits in it. Um, in the marketplace, government policy in various ways keeps them going, especially the bigger they are, the, the more profitable they are, um, by with subsidized crop insurance. And so if you're a you know 10,000-acre soybean farmer in the Midwest and the price of soybeans drops um, below a certain level – you get you get the subsidized insurance that kicks in to make up the difference for you, and so you uh-huh. eke out a profit anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, the guy down the road who's doing all this work um, with biodiversity um, on his you know five hundred or a thousand acre farm isn't looking that attractive to you when you're mm-hmm. on your ten thousand acre farm and you've got basically guaranteed money coming in, and maybe you're making the same amount of money on ten thousand acres as he's making on a thousand acres. But you're doing less work, um, and it's completely guaranteed, and so that that creates this tremendous inertia. So we can talk about success stories all we want, and we've I've been talking about them for mm-hmm. a decade, and other mm-hmm. other people have been writing about them, and we're not seeing a big change. And so what a lot of people like me are saying is that we have to change the policy, and that you know we have to change these policies that are making it profitable for these giant farms to skate by overproducing corn and soybeans. And that gets back to that, um, that quote you read earlier from the book about how these companies invest some of their profits in keeping those policies the same. It's really, really hard to change farm policy in Washington. Right. So they're totally incentivized 
to stick with the status quo. Um, and what's, I mean, okay. So is anything, do you think that there's anything at stake right now with the current presidential election? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So basically the Trump administration has put the current foreign policy on steroids, the current sort of status quo, um, foreign policy on steroids by essentially parachuting cash into farm country um, for various different excuses. There was a trade war. There was the COVID-19 crisis that didn't really impact corn and soybean prices that much. Mm. But you know, these excuses come up and Trump found his um, USDA secretary, Sonny Purdue, found a mechanism to basically create money without going to Congress. And I'm, we're talking billions of dollars okay. and just essentially handed it out to these farms. And so that's what Trump is doing. There's no, no talk of reform. Everything's great. Um, you know, Sonny Purdue's already said himself, you know, get big or get out. He's told farmers that. Um, and I think with, if Biden were to win now, his a very moderate politician and his right. you know, entire time in power. He's never challenged foreign policy. The Obama, you know, Biden-Obama foreign policy was not great. His yeah. pretty status quo. And he's listening to Obama's USDA secretary, Tom Vilsack, who's a former governor of Iowa. He's got a very, you know, standard, you know, moderate democratic policy, very tied to agribusiness. But here is the thing. I think that because the economy is basically in tatters and mm. because the um, the epidemic continues, we are going to need radically different policies going forward. I think we're going to need something like a new deal. And, you know, there's this, uh, like, like we had after the Great Depression or in the Great Depression, and there's this uh, famous quote by a right-wing economist um, who said, um, you know, basically when there's when a crisis hits, policymakers grope towards ideas that are lying around. Ah. And I think that um, there's been the social movement and uh, politicians like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who have put a Green New Deal out there as an idea lying around. And I think it's going to be something that we could very well see if the Democrats take the Senate, something like that could happen. And I think food and food policy could be a part of it because if you care about climate change, and if you read my book, you will see that climate change is completely accelerating the crises that I, I talk about. We're not ready for climate change. We need to completely change our agriculture to get ready for climate change. And I think that something like a Green New Deal, if it pushes through, could transform things. Nice. I mean, radical solutions all around, it seems, are, are needed to address the, the cat catastrophes of this year um and and certainly and in the makings for long before then too um because it seems like even if i mean worst comes to worst this this uh industrial food system is upheld by you know pumping money into it and just kind of holding it up it's becoming more and more fragile each year due to climate change conditions um is that right like flooding very well said yes okay and that's not really being addressed at all, is it? No, and I, and I think that's the one of the re- reasons why I wrote the book was that I really wanted 
and I'm really kind of only articulating this since the book has come out um, as, as I think about it. But really what I was trying to do was elevate this, these conversations about the food system, about agriculture in California and the Midwest, these two really crucial places of agriculture. And I want them to be elevated in the conversation about climate change mm-hmm. because climate change is coming for those places. C- climate change has already descended upon those places. And if we continue down the path we're going, we are going into climate change with an incredibly fragile food system. And the catastrophes to come are, you know, I mean, we're, we're already seeing it in California with the fires and the huge drought that happened um, in the first half of the 2010s. And that will certainly not be the last drought. We may already be in another drought. And mm. all of these phenomenon are, are climate related. And so we really have to get ready for this, um, mm. for this coming up. And that's sort of what I wanted to do with the book is make that point. Right. So what can we as a, as a you know, I'm a non-farmer, um, don't have any land <laughs> to my name, and, uh, but I'm a foodie, right? So, yeah. so what, if anything, can we do to help you <laughs> right now? <laughs> I think that the foodies, so I think, you know, in the book, I talk about how Michael Pollan comes up with his fantastic book, uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, in, in 2006. And he says, vote with your fork. And I think that foodies have done an incredible job of doing that. Um, I think we've the rise of farmers markets and CSAs and farm-to-table restaurants are not to be sniffed at. They're an accomplishment. They didn't exist in anything like the current form 30 years ago. And that's because of people voting with their fork and also the hard work of farmers and people yeah. organizing but I think that now we've reached the limits. We need to continue vo- voting with our fork, but we've reached the limits of what we can accomplish with it. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, but now is the time to get out on the street. Mm. And we've already seen people get fed up and get on the street about racial injustice and racial violence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that shows, I mean, that problem didn't arise in, you know, as we all know, it didn't r- arise in 2020. Um, when the cops um, killed some people in 2020. This has been going on for a long time. What changed in 2020 was people, once again, as they have before, got fed up and hit the streets. And I think that same energy has to come to bear with climate change. Um, you know, the fossil fuel industry has an even more powerful lobbying arm and even more damaging uh, product and it's not going to give up its prerogatives easily, the food industry as well. And so I think getting out in the street and demanding climate action and demanding that food be part of that is what it's going to take ultimately. I couldn't agree more. And I hope that everyone gets their hands on this book because they might be in- incited to – it's so compelling. I think you will be incited to get out on the streets. Um, I certainly am really inspired. Um, it looks like – that's about all the time we have to, for today, but uh, that was an incredible, thank you so much for your time. That was an incredibly inspiring uh, interview and incredibly important book that you've written. So yeah, thanks so much, Tom. Thank you, Kathy, for all the great questions. Absolutely. So Perilous Bounty is out from Bloomsbury. 
Um, you can get it wherever you get your books. Uh, certainly books, uh, bookstore.org is something somewhere I've been getting my books a lot lately. But if you have a local bookstore, we hope you can go out and support it. Tom, I know you're in Austin, Texas. Do you have a favorite bookstore of yours? In Austin, Texas, uh, Book People is fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Well, from everyone here at Heritage Radio Network, thank you, Jeet Suresh Paul, our engineer. And uh, we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.